Welcome and thanks for listening in. Shout out and thank you to all of you who went over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify last week and dropped a rating review. Largest bump or percentage I've seen from episode to episode with ratings or review. That helps the podcast out. I'm appreciative. If you're willing to swing over there, spend the six to nine seconds, click a five-star review. That's my preference, but follow your heart there and leave a comment down when you drop that, that rating in there. That helps the podcast get shown to more people. It helps the algorithm. And I am forever grateful for those who have done it and are willing to go over there and just spend a few seconds if you're enjoying this content and helping me out. So thank you again for those who have done that. And if you haven't, please consider doing so. This episode is sponsored by bogeydope.com. If you're looking to launch your military aviation career or civilian aviation career, or maybe you're transitioning from the military to the civilian world, check out all that Bogey Dope has to offer. They have a whole host of courses and instructors that can guide you through the process. You can click the link down below and it'll get you over to bogeydope.com. And at a minimum, just check out their job board because they have a lot of great content to show you who's hiring. Altitude. Altitude. Sea tide, Altura Zero Eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Five projector. Billy Flynn rejoined the podcast this week. He was originally on episode 50. Billy began his career in the Canadian Air Force flying Hornets, an exchange tour of the United States Air Force as a test pilot, and ultimately wrapped up his career at Lockheed Martin, doing some amazing work in the F-16, as well as the chief test pilot for the F-35. I have a link down to his website below where you can check out Billy and see some of the things he's putting out there and then more information about him and where you can find him as well. Today, we are approaching the episode purely to talk about piddle packs and the new technology that's out there from SkyDrain and some other systems, which I have linked down below as well. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can actually see them. Billy brought that, and we're, again, going to focus on that. However, as fighter pilots do, we, we might have diverged from the initial subject, and we end up talking about single pilot ops in the KC-46, getting his opinion on that, as well as a few other things like near-peer threats etc. Always fun to talk to Billy. Before we roll into the podcast, one last mention. Thank you to all my Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast and making it happen. Week in and week out, you can be a Patreon supporter, get early access and exclusive content by clicking down in the show notes below. All right, with that being said, let's jump into the episode with Billy Flynn. Billy Flynn, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. I think this one, if people haven't heard, we did an episode back in June encouraging you to check out was more of the career as well as some things that are going on. You have flown more fighters and you've forgotten more about flying fighters than I have ever known. So it is a, it's an honor to be able to chat with you. But today, taking a little bit of a turn and deep dive into piddle packs, human performance, things that I think most people don't even think about. When you're thinking of an F-35 that costs $80 million, $85 million, $135 million, depending on what, what the print is, you can, you can correct me on that, or a Viper or an F-22 you tend to overlook the fact that the person sitting in the cockpit has physiological needs. And I shared a story with Mace on the episode. She had talked about, you know, being a female fighter pilot. It's pretty tough to go to the bathroom in the jet. It's kind of tough to go to the bathroom in the jet period. Doesn't matter who you are. 
And we shared some piddle pack stories. I think you leaned in because you have a lot of experience in this area with the development of F-35 and kind of how things are being brought into the cockpit to hopefully enhance the human performance piece. So I want to turn the talking stick over to you and maybe just kind of take us down the rabbit hole on the human performance side of this and why this is an important thing to talk about. <laughs> Rain, it's good to be back. And, you know, last time we talked about cool stuff like auto ground collision avoidance and how, how you and I both did air shows and F-35. And now we're going to talk about peeing in a cockpit. So <laughs> really, we've gone to the other side of it. You we're know, the we're cool, spanning it here. Yeah. And, and not the sexiest of topics necessarily, but it does relate to uh, having men and women fly the fifth gen jets or fighter jets at the performance of what the jet is capable of. So we, we have the best fighters in the world. They're not Russian. They're not Chinese. They are American, the most lethal airplanes around. And we are expected to be lethal in those jets. And so the United States Air Force has taken the view that they need to, the organization needs to focus on the human and make sure that they're operating at max performance. So fifth generation jet with a fifth generation pilot that in a, in a holistic view of flying, uh, we, we in a fifth gen jet have, a, have different tasks than you and I, when we flew the Viper, when I flew the Hornet operationally, it's more... Uh, cognitive tasks, right? We have we have massive global SA. We have to process the, all that information. It's not our hands and feet skills as much as it was. We'll go back third gen in F fours and and then Vipers, where you really had to be. It was us in a jet against the other guy in a jet. And now it's the jet flies itself. But we've got we got a lot of work to do in that cockpit. We have eighteen thousand pounds of gas in an A model F thirty five A and twenty thousand pounds of gas in an F thirty five C. We're not flying 1.3 hour missions like we typically did in a Viper or a Hornet. We're doing 2.0s and we're doing 2.5s without tanking in those jets. So we're out there for a longer duration. We're busier workload in the cockpit mentally than before. And the Air Force is real, at least the Air Force, um, I'm sure the Marine Corps and the Navy will catch up, have realized we need to focus on the human in the cockpit and making sure that they're at a much higher level as, as capable as the airplane's that they're flying and and that's why they've adopted a program of optimizing human performance so the mental capacity there's a physiological part of that there's making sure that you and i can fly at the highest level of readiness throughout a mission and and we're talking long duration missions we're talking uh ingress to bad guy land that could be a four hour ingress and oh by the way let me let me look ahead if we're going to fight china that that's not happening on the home turf. That's happened a thousand yeah. plus miles away. So long duration in, got a fight in Ukraine style theater where it's highly contested, high threat environment. We are we are remarkably busy trying to stay alive and be lethal, and then fly our way all the way back home. Long duration sorties, and we need the human at its at our men and women at their peak throughout that whole iteration, and so. We have to approach how to keep the human functioning through it all of that. Now, <laughs> so historically, what we what we wanted people to do does we we wanted to work out and and spend time in the gym so that we were physically ready to pull G in a in a Viper. You you're used to it, especially as a demo guy, the crippling, painful nine G of being pinned in the corner, you know, wrecking our necks, wrecking our backs <laughs> over over all the years, right? I flew with so many Viper guys as a test pilot who, had, who were baby Viper guys 
their whole careers. And every single one of them had permanent damage from the back of the neck from just the punishing. It's the seat reclined, the way our heads were up and, and just the, the energy in a Viper. Uh, we have to deal with um, keeping our uh, fighter pilots healthy, not injured. Uh, we have to train them better on conditioning and strength so that they actually know how to work out to be ready to do the mission we ask them. And then we need to make sure that they're hydrated, that they're, they're ready to, and they know more about nutrition so that they're ready to go into the fight at a full up human level. Um, so let's step a couple of things out. Uh, we're going to focus on making sure that they don't get, when they get hurt, when they get hurt doing BFM, like we, in, in, in the Viper, we had to suck it up, go back and, you know, come yeah. to work the next day with pulled back muscles and pulled neck muscles. And we may have been deniffed, uh, for a day or two, but we went back in and sucked it up and over the years punished ourselves. Well, now hopefully there are massage therapists there to help get someone off being injured and back being healthy. Um, smarter physical fitness conditioning with expert trainers to make sure that the men and women were doing the right thing in the gym and had a routine to keep themselves healthy. Uh, I'll go off on a tangent and say, I know this because I've flown at so many air forces around the world. The one military service in the world, well, the one country in the world that takes physical fitness serious for fighter pilots is the United States. You're not going to find Brits in the gym. You're not going to find Indian fighter pilots in the gym. You're not going to find Dutchmen or Danes or, or Canadians in the gym. And, and I, I know this because years ago, I did a squadron exchange when I flew Hornets operationally in Germany. We used to have a base southeast of Ramstein, two bases. But I, I flew there and we did an exchange in England with F3 Tornadoes, um, which is uh, <laughs> Dan Robinson, who's the the CEO of Red Six, who you've talked to, yep. uh, he flew F3s in the beginning, an interceptor, not a fighter. And we did an exquirement change in England. So we would run in the morning. Some of us went to the gym and the Brits explained to us that on every squadron, they had a sports prevention officer. And he, they said that if you ever felt the need to do something athletic, you'd call him and he would come over with a six pack of beer and, and a bunch of sandwiches and a movie and, he, <laughs> and he'd drink and eat and watch movies with you until that urge to do something athletic went away. Right. So it was that's, just a culture. That's that's yeah. We had two Dutch exchange. We always had a Dutch exchange officer. Great, phenomenal human beings. Uh, but it, yeah, it's like, go smoke a cigarette, jump in the jet, blood pressure's up, go pull G's like a monster. Again, phenomenal yeah. fighter pilots. It's just, it was just funny to, we'd hit the step desk, go out and be like, Hey, we'll catch up, you know, and smoke a cigarette and <laughs> off the way. It was like the good old, the good old days, but yeah, back when men were men. Well, I, I remember that flying in, in Southern France or the test pilot and the brief was over as he's smoking the cigarette, walking to the <laughs> jet and it was cross a yeah. road to get through the gated fence. And the brief was over when he threw his cigarette butt into the ditch and we went through the gate to walk to the jet. I love it. So yeah, really not the mentality we have in the United States. So we, we don't go <laughs> to the changed. gym and you, I'm sure you know a bunch of Marines that you've met at air shows and over the years and you're going to find them all in the gym as good Marines yeah. and, and everybody in the air force that I knew ever flew with, they, they understood about physical fitness, but in this case, it, it's even more focused. And then, and then let's get into this topic of uh, being in a jet and, and you introduced me that I should know more. I, I think I know more because I've used piddle packs on every flight for so many years that I probably have used more. It's not what I want to be known for, but I probably used as many as 
anybody in in human history of flying jets. Um, well, you, you got a lot of time. You got a lot of time in jets, but I mean, I think it's fair too. I probably <laughs> list, point this out to the listeners, kind of get perspective. I'll ask you because so flying a seven hour combat sortie, you know, I would probably, you know, I'm drinking water constantly and probably burning through four to five pedal packs on that sortie. And then for even a demo, a 15 minute demo, I had my emergency piddle packs, right? Which, you know, usually you're not planning on using it, but if you get to the end of the runway and had a delay, I was hydrating so much, getting ready to go pull nine G's, you know, 10, 15 times. So you have to be hydrated. If I had to wait at the end of the runway for any kind of, you know, five, 10, 15 minute delay, I'm going to bust out a piddle pack and use a piddle pack. And I think I did mention Mace's episode there's a great picture of me in the Viper. I mean, it just looks super mean pulling nine plus G's. There's all sorts of vape coming off the jet and there's a piddle pack and the aft transparency <laughs> that I had placed in the map case and it departed going about 169 miles an hour as I was rolling one point, like, thank God it didn't hit me, you know, in the nugget and, and knock me out. But it, I, I mean, it went right past me, just straight in the aft trans. And I was like, Okay, I think we're good, you know, and it was right there at the end of the demo. But yeah, it's like you, you have to be hydrating. And out of this came was talking about Tally, who was in our squadron. She would fly a seven, eight hour combat sortie and never go to the bathroom. She purposely dehydrated herself because it's not an easy thing for, I mean, you get good at it, but it's a little bit easier for guys, but 30 degree, you know, recline seat. Yeah, it's just not, it is not easy to do. So you say you might've used the most pill packs in the history of man. Like I might challenge you. Like I was burning through those things. Like you read about them. And as you get, you know, more seasoned, you're like, all right, well, it's into the EOR, uh, before we take off. Like, I think I'm just going to go ahead and use a pill pack. Just be safe, you know, and just use a pill pack off you. Well, so, so in the demo, think about the demo. Cause I was the same way, uh, especially at Paris, I, I, I would start early. So my jet would be ready in case I had to jump to a spare. So I started way early. And I used the pedal pack before. I wanted my head perfect. I wanted to be hydrated. And I needed my yeah. head perfectly clear for the demo. It's the hardest thing you did or I ever did in a jet was try to perform down low in front of all humanity. And, and I didn't need the distraction of, oh, yeah, I got to pee. You delayed me 15 right. minutes and I'm, I don't need that. I want to take that off uh, out of my headspace. If you talk to Navy guys and all the ones that I flew with for the year, they're going to go on their way back into the boat as they sit in the hold in the Marshall stack, working their way until it's their turn. They're going to pee because they want that off. Just take it off the table, get it out of their head and let them go focus on the hardest task there is for a naval aviator or any aviator, which is landing on the boat. So get that out of our head and then let us focus on the task. So yeah, piddle packs. And, and, and for the non-aviators, what the, all they are is like a freezer bag with used to be sponges now uh, powder that you would see in a baby diaper uh, that you use, and basically you tie it up at the end, and uh, and <laughs> theoretically don't let it float in the back of your cockpit <laughs> yeah. or leak all over the place. You know, theoretically you're going to put it in a helmet bag or your mouth case, and then pull it out and not make sure your crew chief had to do it at the end. And and for a guy in a in an American harness that you're used to, that we're used to, in the, so Eagle and Viper, uh, uh, the two jets that we we talk about a lot. It's it's relatively easy, right? We had uh, we had our our parachute harness, if you will, the the harness that we wore that we clicked into the the seat pack, and then we had a lap belt that uh, strapped us into the jet to keep us from coming off the seat. 
and for us in those in those airplanes, it was relatively easy, right? It, we really loosened the lap belt or maybe undid it and put it underneath your thighs. But and then, and there wasn't much more complication than that. Open your your zipper of your flight suit, or if you had a, a dry suit on, open the dry oh. suit zipper. But if you're wearing a Martin Baker harness, so that goes from Canadian Hornets, which had a Martin Baker ten seat. Tornado, which I flew in Germany, which had a Martin Baker 10 seat. Typhoon and F-35 have the same seat, a Martin Baker um, 16. Or uh, Brit Hawks, their trainer. All, all of those Brit or Brit-linked airplanes had a Martin Baker seat, which had a big um, quick release button that came from the center between your legs. And then you clicked into it. And you clicked into it with... Um, a really funky way the harness is all mixed together uh, over your shoulder straps, which linked to your lap belt, which, oh, by the way, you had arm restraints to bring in your arms during ejection. And you're clicking in, there's five points, but it's really almost seven different uh, harnesses all come together at the same time. And the only way to use a pedal pack or get access to any uh, of your flight suit is to completely unstrap, which means safe your ejection seat, then unstrap. Put all these straps someplace, go about your business with your pedal pack, and then strap back in and, and arm your ejection seat. Oh, by the way, that's five minutes minimum where no one's flying the jet. You're on an autopilot if you have a decent one like in a Eurofighter or an F-35, but you're not flying the jet. You bumped the stick and you just pushed yourself through the roof and got yourself really in trouble. <laughs> and and on a clear day, so for me at Patuxent River, going, I flew out over the Atlantic Ocean almost every flight. Um, I'm heading out over the Atlantic Ocean, so I have time transiting at 15,000 feet to just sit there in clear air. But that's not how you flew and I flew. It's certainly not in transatlantic flights or any long anything that was long duration. Often we're in cloud. We're, uh, oh, by the way, we're with the tanker in the cloud, uh, right? So we're in formation on the tanker wing. Then we refuel, go back on the wing with the tanker, and, and we don't have free time. Like we don't, we're flying the whole time. And so in many cases, people don't have that five minutes of free air just to go use a pedal pack. So it took, we're, we're, yeah. I was, I was say on that note, cause it took me a while, like doing close air support when it wasn't busy in Rome op. So you and your wingman flight lead, you're separated by 2000 feet. You do have the altitude hold and you can kind of keep bumping the stick and the Viper. You could use heading mode, but to keep spinning around in, in the, in a long wheel. So you're not effective through with the mission. You can be listening and talking, but, uh, this is kind of down the rabbit hole. So I would un I would save my seat. I would hit the standby reticle in the HUD. So, and I would turn the brightness up on the HUD at night. So it stared me in the face, which I know that's my cue that my seat is not safe or my seat is safe. Sorry. So I have to get rid of that in the HUD. I have to arm my seat again. Uh, but then, you know, you could use a pedal pack and go about your business. Have you, I've only heard stories. I don't know if they're true or not. I think it's an A-10 story where someone has unstrapped. They have used a pedal pack or done whatever. And then they have forgotten to rearm their seat or reconnect back into their seat somehow, some way, and then had to eject. Have you heard any of this story? Or is this? Yeah, no, no, they're not myth. So uh, First one in the Viper goes back many years ago, but uh, when I was at Edwards, so that's early '90s, flying Vipers, there were there there had been many one many years before, but there were two back to back, 
where guys had taken the the lap belt harness. So for the non-aviators, it, it's just two parts that come together in the center of your body. Um, they'd taken them out, put them down and on the right-hand side, then they'd raised their seat because we're reclined at 30 degrees in the Viper to get a, to get sort of better posture. And the harness had got underneath the stick and, and sent the aircraft out of control. And the, the two went, went back to back because, because of course, after that, we, we got some memo from ACC or some headquarters that said, look, stop doing dumb things like this. But the one airplane uh, was a, doing a cross country from like Vegas to somewhere in the south of the United States. And, and the, the airplane crashed 300 feet from the civilian terminal at Palmdale, California, which is where Lockheed Skunk Works is. Uh, it, it hit a, on the, ra- the ramp 300 feet from the terminals where the airplane crashed when the guy ejected. Um, I, I know of a bunch of accidents where tactical dehydration have, has been written as a cause, but I only know of three accidents where, um, where guys had uh, dro- drove the, the side stick somehow because they raised their seat or lowered their seat and the stick got jammed into the into the seatbelt. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, so, I, I'm sure someone listening, I, I, cause yeah. I, I think there was an A-10 mishap where he ejected, but he had, he had disconnected from his harness somehow, some way driven down that road. And that's yeah. all to paint the picture that this is more than just talking pill packs. And then you start getting into the, the tactical dehydration, like talking about my friend, like tactically dehydrated herself to fly the sortie. Yeah. And everything worked out. <laughs> You know, everything worked out fine on, on, in these stories, but that's not the case. If you go out there and fly a 10 hour sortie, seven hour sortie, hour sortie, you're doing high aspect BFM, or you go to the merge and you're turning it up in the cognitive awareness, even if you're driving straight and level and solving complex problems, this is a, this is a problem that has to be figured out. You know, and I know there are a lot right. of smart people like we're, we're not driving it, a car, you know, cross country and just not stopping at the interstate, you know, rest stop to pee. We're going to fly combat sorties. And, and okay, Af- Iraq and Afghanistan were low threat compared to what we would see in Ukraine or what we expect to find in China or in the Arctic if, we, if Russia comes across the, the North Pole. But, but regardless, it's still a seven-hour sortie in a fighter jet. And, oh, by the way, we stopped drinking an hour before we even got dressed yeah. to then go fly. And, and I, know, I, I know guys across the world uh, – uh, Aussie Hornet guys who, you know, 20 years ago, they stopped drinking an hour before they flew. We, we did operationally as young captains. We stopped drinking coffee at 10 in the morning, even if we had an afternoon sortie, because we didn't, we didn't want to have to pee in a jet. We weren't even smart enough to realize that what we were expected to do was max perform our body. Don't tell me that you're going to be able to handle, put it this way. I want to fight the guy or gal who hasn't drank for four hours before our BFM sortie, because their G tolerance is going to be significantly lower than mine. And even if they're a better aviator than me, they're not going to be paying attention except to stay awake at 9G going around the corner. And they're certainly not looking at me and my jet trying to fight me. So we are significantly lowering our capability in the jet if we don't hydrate. And and a way to think of fighter pilots now is think of them as high-end athletes. Think of treating every man or woman that walks the jet like an athlete. You, you and I would never play hockey, play soccer, or football, even, even in high school. We'd never go to the gym without Gatorade or water with us ever. 
We wouldn't go on an eight-hour hike up Mount Whitney in California without hydrating all along the way. Yet, we have accepted for so many years that it's okay. We're just not going to drink liquids before we go fly and just because we don't want to have to pee. And, and we are lowering our physical capability, our, our mental cognitive capabilities because we're cheating the system because it's so awkward. And, and you, you talked about mace and tally. It's so much more difficult with, uh, with women. We have, we've forced them to wear diapers uh, for so long as you know, some makeshift solution to that. So look, we've, we've compromised our, ourselves as fighter pilots for a long time. The term is tactical dehydration. And, and now there's technology out there to make things easier uh, than the piddle pack that we, you and I, you and I used before <laughs> we went and flew demo sorties. Um, so I, I think start treating fighter pilots like high-end athletes. People will hate that the fighter pilots' egos will get even bigger than they are already, but, yeah. <laughs> but do that. And understand that that I need you and I need everyone to fly to the capability of the jet, and not be handicapped. And and then the mentality changes and you go, okay, what do I need to go fly an eight hour sortie uh, in Ukraine where people are shooting at me and I'm expected to do a seed mission, which is I think the most taxing mission out there. Uh, you you and Bender Invader in your conversations were talking about red flag at night, like that. There's no part of that. That's an easy sortie, right? You're busy from the beginning. It's not day VFR cruising out into the area to go fight and then cruise back home. You're concentrating, you're focused the entire time and you need to have your, your shit together. hundred percent. It, you know, I think special operations command has figured this out with putting physical therapists, investing in the human as an asset. Air combat command that started and I think it, it's still there. It's always on the chopping block, but talking about putting physical therapists, massage therapists, gym equipment, in every fighter squadron treating the pilot as an asset and a tool, right? That's the part of this. You don't need the pilot to be the weakest link in this $130 million jet because they've tackly dehydrated themselves. They've tweaked their neck, whatever it is. You spend a lot of money to get them into that system and know how to operate that system and go out there and tactically execute. So you need them to work. So investing in the person and again, I've mentioned it, you know, I don't know where the follow-up is. I've had General Kelly on here, uh, you know, before I've had Paco. This is one of the things I get always, it's a line item on the budget. that's always there. And it's probably easy. We've talked, I think you and I talked about this. If it come down, if it comes down to buying bullets and missiles or things that kill and break things and people, where's the money going to be spent? Is it going to be spent on those type things or is it going to be spent on the person? Well, typically... You know, you know, I, I bought an extra 1000 AMRAMs this year. That's an easy thing to go up there and, and talk about. But we go, well, wow, I have 10 physical therapists and fighter squadrons across the country. It, it kind of seems like a prima donna type thing. But the importance of it, I think, is huge. It, it is. So think about how much money the Air Force has invested in pilots. By the time they get to initial qual training, so at the end of Luke and an F-35, it's somewhere between 5 and $10 million invested in each pilot. By the time you get to a weapons school grad, that's $35 million that the Air Force has invested in that human. And you want them to be able to max perform. And the cost of a a massage therapist at the squadron or gym equipment is a fraction of what it costs to operate our equipment. And oh, by the way, if we don't come home, if we kill ourselves because our G-tolerance isn't up up to par, if we 
get killed because our mind isn't in the game and we get hit over enemy territory, then we've lost that investment. And what's the investment of in that human? It's that $35 million. And, and I think you've heard me say this before. It takes three years to build a fighter jet. It takes 26 years to build a fighter pilot. We can't afford our losses to be, uh, if you will, self-induced because we didn't make sure the human was ready to fly at peak performance. That's the investment. And in the end, the cost is, it may seem like we're babying these, these prima donnas by putting gym equipment in the squadrons and by getting them access to massage, massage, massage therapists. But what we're really doing is investing in the jet coming home every time and that human that we're trying to make into the weapon school grad, the 10-year fighter pilot that is the lethal killer that you and, and Vader and Pender and all of us hoped we were at, you know, at the peak of our career. So I, it's, a, it's not a big investment. It's not. And it gets tough. I always compared it with demo this and there's some there's apples and oranges here and there's more to it than just a statement. But usually we're willing to buy the Ferrari, but we're too cheap to put the gas in it. Those are some of the struggles that come along with it. You're like, hey, you know what? Like this is this is a no brainer. You know, I'll buy the the cover that goes on top of my Ferrari and it's going to preserve it for this long. But now nah, we're not going to do it because that's just a nicety. And again, that's not a complete fair statement, but I think you could probably draw parallels to various things that people experience throughout the fighter squadron. It's like if you put a scheduler, a contract scheduler in the squadron, you're going to gain three fighter pilots back into the line who are going to be studying in the vault. What's the ROI on that? Well, it's tough to show the ROI on that until you go into a shooting match and you're like, well, because that guy spent all this time studying, he solved these complex problems. Again, it's, you can't necessarily show it. It's like a safety program. Well, how many jets did you save? I don't know. Right. But you know, the ones that crashed and did that. So. Yeah. That, I don't want us to get to the point. Look, we, we learned a lot in Vietnam, which is what led us to Top Gun and, and weapons school being revamped. And, and then we had that long period of no combat experience, you know, the peacetime air forces where the uh, senior officers were careerists and not real warriors. But then we, then we went into Gulf War one and, and ever since then, everybody's got combat experience and we've been better focused at what's really important uh 20 years of uh, uh air war over iraq and afghanistan has made us think that it's necessarily low threat maybe uh ukraine has reminded us it's not uh those days are over we're not just cruising in the cap anymore not that it wasn't difficult to do tasks and do closer support right. all of that understood but we're into real shooting matches soon enough and we really do need people peak performing and not to not to uh, give up on the investment of those and realize how difficult the task is. How hard is it in a B2 or uh, what will be a B21 to go do those incredibly long sorties where there's just two people in the cockpit? Uh, you need them hydrated. You need them eating. You need them focused because they've traveled 12 hours in a transit to get to enemy territory where they have to evade detection, do their mission and get their butts home. And oh, by the way, fly you know 12 hours home and land safely at the end game. That's a lot asking of a human. And so our topic is, you know, cheating on coffee and uh, hydrating because we don't <laughs> want to pee seems remarkably short-sighted when we, what we really need is peak performance. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple or one anecdote. We took, uh, we Lockheed Martin took uh, jets to Finland for the competition that ultimately F-35 won now three winters ago. And we came out of Langley 
on a like rainy, dark night, ferrying across the ocean to land in daylight, like there is our rules in the with American military. Uh, but the flight got delayed, taken off, and the tankers got delayed. And the two guys that landed on the far end come into Finland to an airport they'd never been to before and encounter a massive wind shear on the ILS approach on the way in and scared the hell out of both of them. It was so completely unexpected that here they are fighting the jet to get it down on the ground in in the dark, ultimately. And it's the end of a super long sortie where if they'd not been hydrated, if they if they hadn't had this system that we're going to talk about to help them pee, their mind wouldn't have been on the game. And we could have very well hurt a jet, hurt a guy at the end of, of a transatlantic uh, uh, sortie. And that, those are some of the lessons that remind us, like, it's not an easy job. And, and oh, by the way, the worst part of it can be at the end of all, all these long duration missions. This is a complete departure from what we're talking about, but it'd be good to hear your opinion on it. Because I know Bender and Vader, we've talked about the KC-46. There's a lot of that going on in the news with a single pilot ops. Now I fly, fly big old flat planes, you know, for 12, 14, 15, and I've even flown for 16 hours. And I can say my mind is, is goo towards the end of that. And you got four people in there. But what ends up happening are these startle effects. And typically, if everything goes right, the startle effect is a go around out of an, it's a missed approach, whether something happened on the runway and I've seen it in person once in my limited experience doing this, but obviously multiple times in the simulator and it's the end of a 12 hour sortie. There's usually a language barrier involved. Sometimes, you know, you're in other countries, et cetera, and you have to go around the ergonomics and the current big old fat planes flying around. I don't think Lynn well, to just one person doing it and having two or three people there to kind of back one another up is a really nice thing to have because your mind, your mental state, even if you get a controlled rest or get to jump in a bunk for a little bit, it's not the same and your your sleep cycles, et cetera. What are your thoughts on this kind of single pilot operations, et cetera? And again, you got a lot of experience. So, well, you Bender and Vader talked about it. Uh, and then you mentioned, you know, the A350 uh, freighter is supposed to be a single pilot yep. airplane. Uh, and I don't fly big airplanes on purpose, right? I'm, I'm really good in a single seat, small fighter jet. I don't, I don't need anybody <laughs> else with me to bug me um, and to decrease my SA. Um, I, I think it's a circus act. I think it's an, it's, it may have been interesting in a KC-46 to show that a single pilot could fly that airplane. Perfect. You've shown that there hypothetically is some capability if you got to go in some survival mode to get getting aircraft to airborne. And life is great when everything is working. And when all hell breaks loose, I don't know of a single airline pilot, young or old, experienced or not, who would say that they can manage an airplane by themselves when the shit hits the fan. It's just not going to happen. There's so many systems out there that the reason crew coordination is is appreciated to be so important is it takes two of you to manage that. It takes one person to fly the jet, another one to feed the systems and explain what's going on and run through the checklist. I, I don't believe, and, and oh, by the way, not everyone comes from the culture that the you, you three plus me come from, which is a fighter pilot world where we did learn to do things on our own. And we, we're, we practice emergencies so much in our lives that we probably get less startled than someone who grew up in the entire uh, the whole, their whole lives in the civilian world, and I don't want to 
you know, upset the non-military folks and suggest there's a hierarchy. I just know that there's a seasoning of people who are used to handling emergencies on their own and they'll get on with it as opposed to someone who hasn't. Look at the big accidents, the Air France accident from uh, Rio de Janeiro to Paris, where the guy in the right seat never let go of the stick and, you know, they pancaked in in not very many minutes and, and killed everybody on board. Look at all the times when someone panicked in the cockpit. So, so do I think a single person cockpit is a great idea in a big airplane? Absolutely not. There is no statistic that ever would suggest that that is a safer option. Is it okay to demonstrate it one time? Sure. You know, you want to prove a capability, then hypothetically you could do that. I don't know anybody's ego that's big enough that flies big airplanes that says, oh, I'm better off in my my 777, my 787, my A350 without my co-pilot with me or my crew together to manage that system. It's a circus act and that's all it is. Yeah. Coming from a single seat, right? Mayor of Cockpit City. Again, if you have someone else in there, it is just SA decreasing. Well, it's joke, strike eagles, right? There's two people in there. It's half the SA, you know, you got a divisor. Um, I, I think I, I some point. In, <laughs> I flew yeah, F4s <laughs> in Germany, right? I, I flew the F4 in Germany, a German F4Fs and a Greek F4E that had a, a F16C cockpit that was designed by Elbit in the front and back seats with an APG-65 Raider. It was an upgrade to the Hellenic Air Force uh, F4Es that we Germans did for them. And so I'm a, I'm a Viper guy. You know, over the, By that point, I guess I'd had a thousand hours in the Viper when I worked on Eurofighter. And I thought, oh, I can just fly this F4 because it's just like an, F, it's just like an F-16. And I couldn't manage anything because you needed two guys. In Tornado, the guy in the front's just a, he's just a chauffeur. It's the guy in the back doing all the work. So you do need two people. I, I appreciated that in Edmund Ford in Tornado. You really do. But but in Strike Eagle and every other time in my life, look, the guy in the back seat, you are taking, I don't know, 1,300 pounds of my gas or, or 700 pounds of my gas, <laughs> depending on the airplane. You are not helping me. Yeah. When Paco listens so to this, Paco, we're yeah. not talking about you. We, we, we love you, Paco. But I, it is everything is designed differently. But going to you know going from a single seat to a triple seven, I can say, could I take that thing off by myself? Yes, right. Launch for survival. Could I land it if the guy next to me has a heart attack? Yes. But that is the extreme scenario. I think most most pilots could say that, right? Like you need the ability to do it. But operating on a day-to-day basis, just having a person in there, uh, I think is a recipe for disaster. If we've learned Absol- anything. Absolutely. Like and, having- and, and my anecdotes of F4s and, and, and tornadoes, I, had, I flew with incredibly talented Wizzos and navigators, incredibly talented that made me so much better in the jet because we worked as a team. And, 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 and so I, I saw the benefit of that. And I can imagine like you fly now, when you're with seasoned aviators who really, really know the system, then you know that you're better together. And when you get a complicated scenario, not just, oh, one engine's out, but all of a sudden you're two engines out and, well, you know, how do you, how do you manage all that? Well, you're not going to do well by yourself. So uh, I think for that whole idea of one person flying a big airplane, yeah, it's a circus act. Yeah. It, there's lots of things I think in my world you go cargo fire. Well, you better hope you can get that thing on the ground as fast as humanly possible. And it's not a fighter, you know, it's not just yank and bank and make it happen. Right. You're using a team to get that done. So even if the 350 right. F, if the ergonomics are set up because the current cockpit, that's again, I would like to see the KC 46 cockpit. 
I imagine it probably looks like most seven, six set, but whatever they, they, they proved, they demonstrated launch or survival. You can get the thing out of there in a way and one person can land it. Sure. But if you're looking at doing that on a normal basis, uh, I don't yeah. think that's a good idea. All right. We digress. I appreciate you sharing your opinion because I know that's, that's, you, you got a lot of, a lot of experience. Um, and it's slightly different than piddle packs, but it, go, I mean, it also ties into the human performance piece. You're talking, I just saw they, this week they did like a 36 hour flight in the KC 46, which again, I'm sure that's not the, that's not going to be the plan, normal ASD, if you will, but you can prove the capability exists. Should you need that and go take the fight across the globe or whatever it is. But 14, 16 hours, like I'm done. And, you know, the triple seven, there's a bunk and there's four people that you can high five and, and take a nap. I'm sure the KC 46 has a, a rest area, but you are not going to be at your peak performance. If you've been trapped in a metal tube at 8,000 feet cabin altitude for 36 hours, like it, that that's going to wear on you. Cause even find the Viper in the forties, you know, going, going cross country, you know, you're sitting up there at, 12, 14,000 feet, you know, just under it. I, I mean, I felt different, you know, I felt it wear on me just doing those short sorties. So you talk about again. long duration. I've done 13 transatlantic missions in between Hornets and Vipers in my career. It's just a long time at high altitude. You're fatigued just because of the environment you're exposed to. I don't care if you eat properly and bring Gatorade and the coffee and you, you, right. you eat along the way. It's just incredibly fatiguing along the way. And oh, by the way, the Viper is the most comfortable cockpit out there. Better than a Hornet, better than an F-35. It, none of that is fun. None of that is fun. At the end, you just you <laughs> crawl out of those jets. My longest time in a fighter is 13 hours. And uh, you can barely move when you get out of that because you're just pinned in there. There's nowhere to go and all of that. And, and so we're talking about you better, you better drink properly. You, you, you should, you need to eat. And you, t- you talked about, you know, water bottles. I used to take a, a Perrier. I was known for it. I had a plastic Perrier bottle with me whenever I flew and, and I've had them pinned in the back, pinned in the back of the cockpit because it went flying in the middle of the test mission stuck back there. And someone had to go fish it out at the end of a sortie, but always hydrating along the way. Um, and, and there's so, and we've used piddle packs historically. But years ago, people needed to, people went out to solve that problem. And, and the system that started in the United States military that people know, fighter pilots have heard about, is called an aircrew mission extender device, uh, AMXD. And then there was a second generation called AMXD Max. And now there's a third generation of this system. It's called Skydrate. And, and it, it was intended to, uh, be an automatic system that automatically pumped urine away from the body and deposited it in, into a bag. And so let's do a little show and tell for the viewers. And then, yeah. and then I'll explain the male and female versions of that and how it works. So I, I'm a hockey player. So uh, think of a, a cup that a baseball catcher would wear or a ho- every hockey player uh, knows what it is. So a male would wear a cup. Obviously uh, um, our human anatomy goes inside the cup. And then, the real interesting part of the technology is that the hose that it connects to, that this cup connects to, in here are, a sen- are sensors, and it senses the saline content of the urine. So not water, but the salt con- content of the urine. It senses that, and then it automatically pumps through a hose to 
to um, uh, with a with a pump system and deposit deposits it into a bag a bag that as it pumps it pumps air and urine but these little uh, holes here these little vents let the air out not the liquid and so uh, I'll, I'll put all this together while we're talking a uh, cup has a connection to a hose which then connects to a um, a, a bag which then connects to a, a pump system. I'm, I know I'm making this harder than it, it sounds. And in the end, you and I are going to wear this in a pair of boxer shorts. Here you go. Where the cup is going to okay. fit in there. And we're going to walk to the jet with the hose connected, but not the bag. We're going to tuck it in our flight suit. And then when okay. we can strap in, we're going to strap it in. And this bag is probably going to sit on the right side, either in our pocket of our G-suit or, or out in, the, in a helmet bag or in the console. And, and it operates by a, a, a switch that if you needed to, you hear the noise, yeah. it, it, it'll pump if you need it to, or it'll automatically sense the urine that um, it is detected. Now, <laughs> because we spent 20 years or 30 years flying, you and I will never trust that a system will work the first time out. <laughs> we're not going right. to, we're not going to let ourselves pee ourselves in a cockpit and have to land. So we're going to probably use that button to manually start the system and then pee and then see that it collects in the bag. Uh, and, and when, when it stops sensing urine, then it stops pumping that, that automatic uh, pump stops working. And 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 if we do it manually, then we control it. And then at some point we start to believe and we start to trust. And so all of a sudden I'm not unstrapping anymore. I'm flying the jet. Uh, I'm, I'm doing the real mission. And I start to believe that when I need to relieve myself in an eight hour sortie, I don't have to safe the seat, unstrap from my F-35 seat or, or even in my Viper seat, open a poopy suit or open the zipper of my flight suit, pee, then push everything back in, zip up strap back in, arm the seat, five minutes of no one flying the jet. We don't have to do that anymore. This is the third generation of this system called Skydrate. And, okay. and it's been improved. So we fighter pilots said, look, uh, I don't trust that your pump goes fast enough. You need to treat me like a third year college student who was out beer drinking all night and then assume that I'm going to pee as much as, as, as when we were in college, you know, drinking beer as third years <laughs> a lot. Uh, I need to, you to convince me that, so make your pump move fast enough or quick enough to pump out that at that rate. And then give me a collection bag that I can throw away that, that carries all the capacity I need so I don't have to replace it mid-mission and, and will uh, take the capacity of how much I'm going probably pee and make it comfortable enough that it doesn't bug me after four hours of the jet or eight hours in the jet. And this is the right. third generation of the system. Um, Inputs like I want a switch that I, you and I don't have to fumble with in the dark. I don't know on our right side in the cockpit at night. I yeah. want to feel it and know that it's a, a activated switch that makes sense to me. And all of those inputs have been made from the from the feedback from fighter pilots from the first and second generation uh, into this third generation of system. So that's the male part of that. Let me show you the female system because because. The hardest nut to crack was for the women. 
So they're wearing diapers or there are stories of women trying to use piddle packs. All of those are, they, they are inevitably failure stories in that, or just the hugely embarrassing story of women fighter pilots that we know landing and having to look at their ground crew going, Hey, I, I peed in the seat and then walking into the, into ops or the ready room and at the huge embarrassment of that, right? Nobody, nobody yeah. deserves that. And, and oh, by the way, it clearly would have messed with their heads. So, so here's the solution in the women's side. This is a, a pad that they would wear underneath them. It, it has a sticky part of this tape that would fit in the, in the flight suit. It, it has a detector that I just showed you that sits at the bottom. Uh, depending if you're in a reclined seat, like in a Viper at 30 degrees, that's different than if you're in an F-35 and you're sitting upright. Uh, this same pump that I just talked about I'm not going to run it just yet, but what it does in the beginning is it inflates a, a pad around the outside to seal the bottom, basically between the legs and the buttocks of, of the women. So to create a seal that won't leak yep. and then they can pee and that same detector uh, will detect the urine and, and pull it all away from them. And then when it's all over, it'll deflate on them and there'll be no leakage to that. And there's, uh, not all women uh, are the same size. So there's six different sizes of these. And then there's two different types. Okay. One, if it's reclined in a Viper or upright in an F-35. And the rest of the of the pump and the harnesses and the hoses are the same as I showed you for the males. And it's been tested by uh, over a period of time, more than a year ago, uh, a couple dozen women came to the place that where this is uh, designed in Burlington, Vermont, and trialed all this um, to convince everybody that the design worked and that the the switches made sense and that the pump rates were fast enough. By the way, women pee faster than you and I do, even as their dear college beer drinking students, <laughs> and and so that they were uh, uh, that it fit and worked for them. And so now you have male and female fighter pilots that can go fly long duration sorties, can go fight. They put the system on uh, and, and they can go do their mission and not be worried about piddle packs. We're not separating men and women. And most importantly, all of them can hydrate and be ready to go concentrate on the mission instead of being distracted by that. Uh, I'll, I'll throw one last thing in before we start talking about it. Uh, we wear immersion suits or we wear cambio suits, depending on the environment, right? You've been yeah. in Korea or think about Misao, anywhere where we're going to have to deal with cambio. There's a what's called a through suit connector system. So uh, the hose system comes apart, connects on the inside of our immersion suit or a chem bio, and then there's a valve that connects through to the outside, and you connect the hose to the outside. And so now in my immersion suit, I have a seal that is not compromised that allows me to don this system when I get dressed, put it on, then when I strap in to the jet, connect the hose and the bag on the outside. And so I, I've, I can wear this with an emergency suit or chem bio, whatever that environment is. And I still have the same system available for me. Uh, that answered one of my questions because the emergency suit or AKA poopy suit. suit, as you'll hear most people say, I always thought, so South Carolina, you know, in the, it might be 40 degrees, it might be 30 degrees on the ramp. Or it might be 80 degrees and you're going to go fly out over the water yep. and the water temperature is going to be cold. So you have to wear an anti-exposure suit. 
I always thought if it's going to happen to me, I'm going to use a pedal pack and then undoubtedly not get the jaws of death completely sealed back up. I'm going to have to punch out. And not only am I going to be like angry from having to wear this poopy suit out on the ramp, just sweating and, you know, uncomfortable in the jet, but then I'm going to have to eject. I'm going to land in the water and then it's going to fill up through that the jaws of death. I just barely missed. So now I'm going to die angry and cold. <laughs> That's how I thought it was going to play out. So, you know, it's, uh, Oh man, that, those things are just terrible, but you know, I, obviously you have to have a solution for that. Um, it's interesting. Has this been, it's not quite fielded yet. Who, who's the manufacturer of sky? So, uh, Omni defense technologies, uh, or Omni medical systems, two names for it in Burlington, Vermont, the inventor, the founder, uh, was a civilian is a civilian pilot, and he encountered this problem when he was a young guy, and and he's an entrepreneur, and he came up yeah. with this technology, and he's pushed it through in two generations. This system, the third gen, it, let's get into our rant now, has been tested, um, at, but but not yielded. It's approved for all airplanes in the U.S. inventory except F thirty five. Only in F thirty five could we screw up the bureaucracy of this system. Um, the only difference between what red yeah, tape? Uh, so let's go to the rant. You and Vader and, and Bender love rants. Yeah. So here's our rant. Um, yeah. All the engineering was done on this. It passed every part of this. What's different about this third generation system from the one that was approved before? The one before was called AMXD Max. This third gen system is called Skydrake. The difference is the pump rate goes faster. Uh, the hoses are uh, better. Has a better pilot vehicle interface. But that's essentially the only technical differences. Um, it hasn't been cleared for use, but ACC hopefully in the next little bit will approve it to be used uh, even if they're still waiting for the joint program office to sort it out. It sat on the desk in the JPO in Crystal City, some engineer's desk for months upon months upon months waiting for someone to look at this and approve it. Even at Naval Air Systems Command, NAVAIR at Patuxent River, Maryland, where it's being held up for an electromagnetic interference test related to shipborne use, even though the difference between the last generation and this generation of the system is only the little pump itself uh, and some changes to the way the hose buttons are. And, and it's remarkable because in, in flight test, what we learned a long time ago is we clear by similarity in, in big aircraft development. We know if a test one's like the next one, then we can't afford to waste money or time and we need to get systems to the warfighter. And sure enough, in this particular case, the bureaucracy has just crippled the approval of the system. Now, none of this would matter really, except that piddle packs are not approved for use in the F-35. A memo came out more than two years ago about that uh, for, for the reasons that we talked about unstrapping, uh, saving seat unstrapping, flying with no one operating the jet, and then, you know, strapping back in and arming the seat. And so piddle packs were, were forbidden. The system was to be used. And here we are, the third generation of the system not approved because staff officers or, or uh, bureaucrats are sitting on, on the approval. When, when you guys, you three, rant about systems being approved, yeah. this is the tiniest of systems, unimportant compared to major weapon systems getting through developed and approved and, and tested and fielded. Yet here we are, we can't even do get approval for this system and get it out to warfighters. I, I hear it so often about meeting the warfighters needs 
And, and this is a perfect case of how that is not true and how we're not getting it to the men and women that need it. I, I was at the SAFE conference in Mobile, Alabama a couple of weeks ago. It's where life support and survival equipment is demonstrated. And there are lots of briefings on physiological stuff. And these are the, the people that go there are the physiology experts that are hopefully representing the squadrons and the wings in the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Air Force. I saw one F-35 fighter pilot there of all the hundreds of people that were there. So not a single war fighter in that building. And I knew from what I saw of all the bureaucracy that's stifling getting better, life preservers getting better, helmets getting better, masks and getting a system like this. I knew that it would be a bloodbath if there were operators and fighter pilots there instead of bureaucrats and staff officers, because we would just go ape screaming at the people who are supposed to staff this work, this stuff to get it to us on the, on the front lines. And, and I think this particular uh, example is just so emblematic, emblematic of how poor our procurement system is um, ultimately. So Billy, I, I, it sounds like we're going to have you on the bro chat. You can bring some of your, your senior <laughs> saltiness to it. Uh, but you, I mean, cause you, you see, you've seen it from a much different level than the rest of us where we're just kind of like griping and moaning. And I equate it to remember the 406 megahertz beacon that got fielded. And I'm thinking this is like 2000, you know, 10 ish for the air force as it really started making its migration. But I remember having an FCIF come out saying fly with your cell phone, because if you eject, most likely the fastest you know, stateside way you're going to get picked up is utilizing your cell phone because, oh, by the way, the beacons are have a high failure rate and it's not working as planned. You know, like this seems like something that we should I don't, put some effort behind to solve this problem fairly quickly. It's it's that type stuff that keeps popping up. And I can go down the road with you know ejection seats. Right. There's. Yeah. It is a, it is your a example of Shaw. Right. Your example of of. The, the Shaw fatality as an, an ejection seats. Yeah, it's uh, it, to me, it, there's, it, it is mind boggling. When I, when I did the episode on the Shaw seat there, again, there's a lot in that world. I don't understand from the procurement side of the house. I made some assumptions and I did have people chime in who worked in equivalent type systems for contractors, not necessarily ejection seats, but they had the same level of what they would assume scrutiny that if you're making these technically, these very high, uh, technically demanding components that are critical systems, the amount of oversight that goes in and tracking from, he's like, we know every serial number of every component and where it came through. And there's two sets of eyes or three sets of eyes that look at each one of these before the guy or gal is putting that widget into component X, Y, or Z. So he's like, I don't buy, and I had two or three guys that chime in that I don't buy that. You can just not be aware of this or then not know. And I think there's there's more that's going on behind the scenes right now uh, with I, that. I but. certainly think we need more. This is an example, but it, it, like, you, like you're talking about, where, where the operators, the warfighters, the guys at the front need to be more involved and more educated on the development process. And, and why, why I say that is I hear often super smart engineers or scientists trying to field something without understanding what the user really needs. And it's the user that would step in and go, you can't do that to us because your failure rate is whatever, or that's not right. how we operate. And so here, you know, it comes to a bigger story, which is 
we're so lazy as fighter pilots, as aviators. What we want to do is be on squadron and go fly and get 250 hours a year, get 150 hours a year. We want to go to weapons school. We want to be great aviators. What we don't want to do is take those staff jobs or do those secondary duties that would have us actually focused on the, on things like, uh, you know, uh, being educated on life support equipment and, and making sure they get fielded better. We have less operators involved. And so we often miss the pointy end view of how something should work or not work. Now, theoretically, that's what the test world does from developmental tests to operational tests to then ultimately getting to squadrons. But in so many cases that really uh, we, we fail to ferret out the, the issues that we should have. And so we field systems that, that they don't work for us. It is true. And that goes back. There's this, you really peel back the onion and go way back. We don't have enough fighter pilots. Everyone, we talked about the fighter pilot crisis, but we have to, you know, buy up armored vehicles, et cetera. And the surge of Iraq, that's where a lot of the money flows. F-16s going through upgrades. A-10s are going through upgrades in the 2000s. So you're not producing a lot of fighter pilots in. Fast forward a decade. One, you don't have enough guys to be commanders, et cetera. But also you don't have fighter pilots are going to white jets. You don't have guys who are going to staff to, to have this input. I do have two stories that kind of tied to one going through the B course. We had a guy coming from the TX who was integral. He was in the F-35, whatever office uh, requirements when it was getting fielded. He said, we would sit, we would show up, sit down at the table with the Navy Marines, Lockheed. He goes, the Air Force, my hands were cuffed, you know, because it took an act of God to have someone sign off to say he could speak about what we'd want. And it was just the Marine Corps that would sit there and we'd say, hey, we want this, 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 and this. So Lockheed's obviously writing that all down. And, uh, you know, we they have a lot of say. So you probably have some, some inputs when it comes to that side of the house. But also, you probably know the guy, and this is the, the funny part of it, the with engineers not knowing what operators need. The North Up feature that made it into the F-16 tapes with a double hog knob clip. So was it uh, 7-1 for the tape? Or it might have been 6-1 when the North Up feature got inputted in there. I was like, hey, this is a great feature guys will use. I think A-10 guys use it all the time. That thing was the most spatial disorienting feature that I've ever experienced in my entire life. We would do things on a, on a night with... So Hyde uh, was our wing weapons officer. He's the most tactical dude I've ever met. Super smart. Uh, he came up with a challenge, you know, over Western Iraq and there's a town, I'm blanking on the name. There's nothing around. It's just a town, circular town, perfect, perfectly circular town. So what we would do is like, you know, spatially just looking out the window. Okay. Hey, I'm in left-hand turn running around the town. I know here's North, South, East, West, you know, the, the, the four pillars there, you put it in North up and it was, the challenge was to see how long you could make it without becoming spatially deed again, cleared night. You have a great visual reference point on the ground. You're going in a circle. I mean, it was like 30 seconds. Like who, why, why would you put this feature in there? So it was really fun to watch when you inadvertently did that thinking you're going into strafe mode and you actually double clicked it, put your HSD into North up. And then it was, it was over. Like I'm turning, I know I turn left, but this saying I should turn right, you know, it's just, it's comical, but yeah, digress. We need to have you on the bro chat. You can bring the senior saltiness. Well, and, and I, I'm a big believer in the system, right? I spent more than 30 years as a test pilot. And in between yep. there, I was a squadron commander. I went to war and, 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 and I understand how complex it is. And I'm a big believer in the system. I, I love the Viper. I, I obviously love the F-35. I love the product that we came out with. 
But I also recognize how hard it is and how you can't lose sight of what the operators need. And, and as soon as you step away from the operational world, and it happened a couple of times in my life, but I, I was a test pilot at Edwards at Flying Vipers. And then I came back to Canada and I was thrown back in the Hornet as an operational squadron commander. And I had, I'd been out of the operational world for seven or eight years. And I started from, from scratch. And I'm saying this because everything we know tactically, you've said it before. Once you leave the, the operational world, that stuff is gone out of your head and tactics evolve quickly. And so we, we need to be refreshed with what the real operators need, what real tactics are. And we can't get lost in what it used to be. We need the, the updated sense of what the real uh, operators need. Uh, we need to understand that you can't cheat the developmental process. There's a reason why there are that many steps, because we have in the past fielded systems that were substandard because they, they went out of developmental testing at Edwards and they get in the operational world without any operational testers, right? real fighter pilots who get to ferret things out, the, the badness out first. And we field stuff and, it's, and it doesn't work. And so there, those steps matter along the way, but we can't lose sight about but about the, the why that process works, but how to expedite things, how not to waste our time being stuck in the bureaucracy and how to get stuff to the warfighter. All of that's complex. All of that needs, you know, realistic, up-to-date tactics and relevance. And then we need to know what the future is and what people want in the jet and not let it spend so many years that when it, when it eventually shows up in North Up, it has no application. You can't use it. And I also think we need to educate things better. And, and I'll use an example. You and Bender and Vader were talking about F-15EX and how it's just a better F, uh, Eagle. I will defend Boeing because I know a lot of the history. It, it, it is the derivative of the Saudi F-15 where the Saudi Arabians paid for this really magnificent upgraded Eagle where it has a fabulous flight control system great radar, great systems in the jet that were gutted from the original, you know, the Gray Eagle, even Strike Eagle. And it's a it's a powerful, impressive eagle. Finally, uh, someone paid for all the unique systems that they wanted over all these years. And yes, it's been Americanized to be F fifteen EX. And I, I I lobbied against it as a as the F thirty five you know global spokesman. I, I right. certainly argued against it when I was working for Lockheed, but I recognize just how impressive that airplane is. And so in your conversation, the bro chat, it, you know, it would have been good to have a, a Boeing F-15EX guy there to explain, wow, you know, it's got so much computing power. Yes, it's just a Gray Eagle, but inside that Gray Eagle is a brand new flight control system that makes it fly stunningly well. It's got such an amazing computing power. It's got great displays that make it that much easier. It's got a fabulous EW system that's really, really powerful. And it's not just a better gray eagle, better strike eagle. And so uh, I, I guess <laughs> uh, there's a saltiness <laughs> to me, but also, you know, uh, understanding what those systems are really help people, right. help people understand what's being fielded. We talked about it, the education piece. So, I mean, one, you talking about the, the, the skydrate, the educational piece, again, you have to overcome barriers and what the environmentals yeah. and the experiences people have. So part of that is the educational piece to get people to, all right, maybe hit the I believe button and utilize it. We've talked about the educational piece with the F-35. I mean, the F-35 caught lots of grief. What For whatever reason, whoever ran the campaign of what's well, not going to replace the A-10, well, no kidding. That's not what it's there to do. Um, but it caught a lot of bad flack in the press. 
the eagle. I mean, it's always going to catch flack from from me. It's a big old tennis court. But no, I, I've heard guys talk. I mean, it's it's rather impressive what that thing can do, especially if it if it if it gets everything we want it to do, and et cetera, et cetera. So education yeah. is definitely a part of it. We talked like the staffing aspect of it. Fighter pilots don't want to go to staff. There's even if fighter pilots do want to go to staff, like it is a critical thing. Like we don't have enough of them to do that. So you get people who don't have fighter experience that are put into positions where they are making decisions that they just don't have the experience and not a knock on them. It's, it just is what it is. If you haven't done it. And then a part of that too, even if it's a fighter pilot, like if you've jumped out of that world, leaning back into the operational side so that you know, what's, what's happening. I mean, things, for me, just doing demo, things had changed, right? Now, if we really jump back into it, it's it's a completely different thing. We're, we're yeah, really so ref- we've been talking about Skydrate and the system and feeling it. You know, how, how do I expect a physiologist to understand what's like to fly an eight-hour combat sortie? They've never in their life been in a fighter, like they've never even been in a fighter jet. They've never been to combat. They've never been stuck in a cockpit for eight hours. They couldn't possibly understand why a system like this is actually so important to the men or women that fly. How difficult the task is. Night closer support in Afghanistan, at, you know, seven hour combat sortie. For me, eight hours going into Kosovo and Serbia at the far end of Serbia, four hours into the mission where I'm actually dropping the bomb and then fight our yeah. way back out. They, they would have no experience, like you said, because, you know, we didn't put fighter pilots in there. Why is a fighter pilot going to take a staff job now when UPS and, and FedEx and all the airlines are hiring? Seriously? Like, I, I can make that. I can, that's an easy decision to make. And yep. so we don't have the right people supporting what the warfighters need. I, 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 just to finish it with this Skydrake conversation, I, I think recognizing that uh, or treating fighter pilots like high-end athletes and recognizing that we're going to put them in harm's way and bad things are going to happen and we need them to be at 100% when the shooting starts means that we need them to hydrate. We need them to eat smart. We need them to train smart. We need their, them to have their game on and not be compromised because they had to trick a system because they were afraid to pee in a cockpit and you know haven't drank anything for eight hours before they actually hit bad guy land. I think we need to stop that. And that's where a system like this needs to be pushed through by the operators and needs to be fielded as just one tiny example of the things to make men and women more effective, more lethal and survivable in the jets. W- w- big wars coming. China is not, we, we're all worried about Taiwan and we better wake up and realize it's not going to be a, Iraq and Afghanistan next time around. It's going to be a shooting war. That's what I think. You know, you kind of lulled really since, yeah. Panama, whatever it might be like, there is not, we've owned the sky. We've had air dominance. We've owned the sky. It's been uncontested for the most part. You're not hearing about it on the news. There, there's a couple little blips here and there of, of spiky activity, but it's nothing of what it'd be compared. If you're going to go knock down the door of a near peer adversary like China or Russia, like that's going to be, the articles are going to be much different. You know, you're going to see body bags. And we talked about in the last bro chat, I mean, Flash, he's an F-35 guy. And yeah, we have to hit the the 70,000 foot view on that. But I think if you listen to it, Flash is a very, very smart guy who's very tied into what's happening now. It's not going to be a pretty picture if that happens. And yeah, you know, you're never going to talk in this 
this conversation, we're going to talk about the funny stuff of piddle pack stories and the, you know, buffoonery because we all know stories and I certainly have my share of them. And now we're talking serious stuff. Um, That's pretty quickly. Look, we're going to fight in the Arctic, right? NORAD modernization is there for a reason. We're going to, we're going to have to fight out of Eielson or Inuvik in Iqaluit or the two places in Northern Canada that have Thule Air Base in Northern, Northwestern Greenland. We're going to go fly over the Arctic with Arctic gear on and we're going to fight Russians who have live in rejuvenated bases that are operable 365 days a year, full on, because someone's coming after the Arctic as uh, climate change that opens access to all the resources that exist in the Arctic. Uh, Someone's going there and we're going to have to go fly and potentially fight over that at some point. We don't have a peaceful world out there. So China again, uh, wherever Russia goes with Ukraine, we're in a different war and, and we, you and I are both agreeing that it's not the peaceful world we had before. That's, that's over. And we've been lulled because it has been low threat environments for so long. Yeah, we can't pass a budget, right? But, you know, look at the Chinese, they have a hundred year plan and they're marching towards it with, you know, expert execution. And so the dynamics of what the world will look like in five, 10, 15 years, it's going to be much different than it is today. And, you know, we're worried about not frivolous things, but there's a lot of frivolous noise that goes on. Whereas the Chinese don't have to worry about that, right? The party doesn't have to worry about that because what the party wants, the party gets, and they have a plan and they're going out there and executing it. We have amazing, amazing technology. I don't believe that J20 and J31 are going to catch up to F35 and F22 anytime soon. And I've used the example before of, you know, we built 117 and then we used our technologies rolled into F22 and then F35 and we're working on six gen. And we're, our technology is going to stay ahead and they're not catching up unless they magically cheat and steal it. It's just not going to happen, but they're going to look, they're going to field three to one against us or four to one. And, and even last week, we read a paper out of the Mitchell Institute about them turning J6s and J7s, MiG-19s, into, into drones that I, uh, hypothetically they'll send out in a first wave against Taiwan to exhaust our, our surface-to-air, or the surface-to-air uh, defenses. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, their frontline airplanes are going to come. We're, we're going to face big numbers. And yeah, they'll cool. not be the same as us. And China's not been to war like we have. They're not combat seasoned veterans. But, you know, when you're outnumbered three or four to one, they don't have to be good because the numbers are just going to be it, it, impressive and daunting and formidable. And so uh, they're not going to catch on our technology, catch up on our technologies. They're not going to be as good as you, me, and everyone else we've ever flown with. And I know you guys love ranting about some or better than others, but really the yeah. Western aviators are so much higher in capability than anyone from a, a centralized um, air force like in China or Russia. But it's numbers, and wow, we're, we're going to have to be formidable. We're going to ha- we are going to have to be really impressive, and all of this leads to you know our technologies better be great and we better give our men and women everything they can to be as lethal as they can be when they go when we send them into harm's way absolutely i mean quantity is a quality in of itself and like you've alluded to quantity is going to be a problem set that has to be solved but i do agree you know the the technology side of the house the training side of the house you can't give up that edge 
but there's going to be a quantity problem that's going to need to be solved, which again, not necessarily that easy of a thing to do when you're swarming an island. Right. Yeah. So we went, I mean, we went from piddle packs to, you know, near peer threats and then into, into world war three, essentially, which, you <laughs> yeah. know, just a little rounded out. I'll circle back before we wrap up here. Uh, I'll share a story. You share a story. You gotta, you gotta have a f- favorite piddle pack story. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, I, I have the epic one of all time. So I, I have, we at Lockheed Martin built 80 F-35, uh, F-16 Block 60s for the United Arab Emirates. And, and part of the contract was that we, the Lockheed test pilots, were, would ferry the jets overseas and t- deliver them to Abu Dhabi, to Al Dafa Air Base, and you know where it is. And so we would fly from Fort Worth, Texas to um, Sevilla, Spain, Maroon Air Base, and land there, spend a day and a half, and then ferry uh, basically down the med. Uh, or across the Med, down Egypt, across Saudi Arabia, and then into the UAE. Uh, 10 refuelings, 10 hours on the average to get to Maroon Air Base, and then probably eight or so to get to the Saudi border, Pankard kiss off, and then we would we would go into the UAE. Uh, these jets had anywhere from as, as much as 20,000 pounds of gas in an E model with conformal fuel tanks and big 600-gallon uh, uh, <laughs> external fuel tanks, right? Tons of gas. So, and we're, we're, we're long time test pods, but not many of, not many of the, gr- the crowd had done, uh, transatlantic flights. So one of my, my buddies, I, I'll nameless like you and Vader and, and Bender <laughs> like to throw out names and then apologize afterwards. I won't name him, but he, he, Yet. he carried a big, he carried a big Gatorade bottle with him, not a piddle pack. You know, he carried a Gatorade bottle with him and that was his way to relieve himself. And, and I used, like a lot of piddle packs on a 10 hour sortie strapped in the jet for 12 hours or more. Uh, and so he would get to the far end. And so he'd get from Fort Worth, Texas, taken off at three 30 or four 30 in the morning. We land in Maroon air base in Spain, you know, 10 hours later, plus the time zone change. And then I didn't, I didn't ask, but basically somewhere along, he emptied his Gatorade bottle and he'd bring it on the next sortie a day and a half later. And then he'd get to the UAE and somewhere along the line, I'm sure he emptied it out. Because he would take the Gatorade bottle all the way back to the United States when we flew back commercial, put it in the dishwasher at his house in Forward, Texas. And then the next time we did this, you know, three weeks later, it'd be the same Gatorade bottle. And I just, it's a conversation <laughs> I, I couldn't have with the guy to go, hey, buddy, we have, you know, limitless piddle packs. So uh, on his retirement, <laughs> I, I, I went to, you know, 7-Eleven, got a Gatorade bottle. I left a little bit of colored liquid into it. And I, I presented it to him at the end on his retirement party. His wife, I don't think she ever knew the story until his retirement. <laughs> and I remember looking at him going like, dear God, you must be kidding. That's what you did with that Gatorade bottle in the dishwasher every time. And yeah, that piddle pack story. He must fly for the airlines now. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> airline guys are like, wow, look at this free bar of soap. I'm like, you're getting excited about soap and it's so cheap. You know, you're like, come on, man, just. <laughs> you, buy your own soap use the piddle pack whatever it might be the the yeah. i don't know if i finished the story of my piddle pack is i definitely had some that might have busted but fortunately they busted in a helmet bag and then they, they had the crystals absorbed so the helmet bag just went away that was like the most egregious thing but it didn't make a mess that because there are some heinous stories out there but that piddle pack that i had to go fly in the aft transparency this is like one of the only shows that I parked perpendicular to the crowd line. And I was within a wingtip of the crowd line and there's, you know, <laughs> 4,000, 5,000 people all packed right there. 
finish the demo, you know, pop the canopy and being a good steward, like you don't want to leave anything for your crew chiefs to have to get. But I walk, I go down the ladder, I do my salutes and then I kind of like whisper to him like, Hey, there's a piddle pack up there. I'll come <laughs> back and get it. Just leave it. You know, just I'll get it. But those guys, th- my team was phenomenal. They got it probably because they didn't want me going back. It's tough to get back all the way yeah, in after oh, transparency. Yeah, so then I know they saw like, Oh no, this idiot's going to climb up the ladder and one, he's either going to fall and kill himself or two, he's going to kick the throttle knock a, you know, the hog knob off or something. And it's going to be a, the jet's going to sit here and, or get trucked out, you know, like, so they, they knew my capabilities, my limitations, but you're like, man, ah, I'm sorry. That picture though is awesome. I'll share it on this podcast. I know I put it out there, but the, the pedal pack can withstand nine and a half G's. No problems. You know, that's right. I didn't Try know about piddle packs. I came from the Canadian Air Force, which was always so backward compared to everything in the United States. And we just, <laughs> we'd flown all these other airplanes that never needed it. And I was at Edwards flying as a test pilot and, and I would fly. So I, I lived in a place called Tehachapi, which is in the Sierra Nevadas. And I drive an hour down in the morning to get to work. And I flew high angle of attack. So departure testing where you put it out of control and you clear these loadings, you had to spin shoot in the back of the Viper and, and you work through about a, it was really about three hours of flying to take an, a, a configuration of some new missile combination or, or bombs or, or fuel tanks. And you'd take it up in the air and you'd go over these spin areas, these select areas right over the base and the lake bed at Edwards. And you put the aircraft out of control and do deep stall testing to see if you could recover it doing that pitch rocking that you know about. And then right. you would evaluate how the aircraft, when it actually went out of control. So you'd fly around almost supersonic and do some really funky pulling and then hard rolls. And then if the aircraft went out of control, you'd get into a deep stall and you'd recover. And, and then there'd be your tanker with you and a, and a chase airplane. And, and it would take somewhere like two and a half, three hours, if you're lucky, to get through the, the, from the very beginning of the mission to finishing all the testing. And, and so my scenario was I'd get up at, I don't know, let's say I, I had a brief at six in the morning. So I'm up at 4.30. I'm driving the hour to Edwards at five in the morning, drinking my coffee along the way. I'd go in the briefing, have a coffee, and then I would go get dressed and go fly the mission. And and you're busy. So you'd go to the up in the spin area and try to put it out of control. And then at some point you have to go get gas. And so you'd go to the tanker and then back into the spin area, do a bunch more of these maneuvers. And then back to the tanker and so on. And then at some point, the coffee and the caffeine kicks in and the diuretic kicks in. And at some point, like you got to pee because you got up at five. Your first coffee was at five in the morning, driving down the hour long drive from the Sierra Nevadas to Edwards. And at some point, the diuretics kicked in and and you got to pee. And the pinnacle point of buffoonery and embarrassment was at some point, I knew I couldn't stay in the air any longer. And so I terminated the mission. So I'm, we're paying for a tanker. We're paying for a, a my mission, the control room of engineers, the chase airplane. And I go, I'm out of here. And I, I, I terminate the mission. I race back to Edwards, um, you know, hit the pitch at 500 knots, go to the end of the 15,000 foot runway. It's like a six mile taxi all the way back. I come into the chocks. I'm looking at the ground crew, just shut off the engine. I got to go. And he thinks I'm on fire and he's, so confused. I shut down <laughs> and I'm like running across the ramp to maintenance to get to the washroom to go pee and then sign in the book. And I walk back and, and everyone's looking at me like my buddies are looking at me going, 
what the heck, what the hell was that all about? And I went, well, I had to pee. And, and they go, well, didn't you bring any pillow packs? And I go, dumb Canadian, right? I go, what's a pillow pack? And they just looked <laughs> at me like, like I'm some idiotic alien. Cause I didn't, I came from a military that never heard of pillow packs. And, and here I was, you know, compromising a mission, blowing thousands of dollars invested in the, in the sortie because I'd never heard of a pillow pack and didn't know how to use it. And that was my, that was my point in life when I went, Oh, okay. And from then on, I, I never flew without a pillow pack. Yeah. Stockpile of piddle packs. It was a crisis. Oh, oh, if you, yeah, oh like, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. In the helmet I bag, am, am, in the yeah. pocket of your G suit, never got cut out with that one ever, ever since that point. Yeah. I am yeah. stuffed everywhere just in case, like if I burn through this stash and I <laughs> forgot to true. resupply it, you know, like at least, okay, I got my emergency one, but this one's been down here for months. So like, I got to watch this one real careful to make sure this thing's not going to start leaking because it was damaged. It's actually so, so true. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's a science behind this because again, I mean, you've had, I've had them rip open. Thank God they ripped open in the helmet bag. Cause I couldn't even, I mean, imagine that thing. Like when that thing went, I was like, that exploded in the aft transparency. That is going to be a mess. I, we're just kind of to scrap this Viper, just roll it off the edge <laughs> of the cliff and just let it go. You know, like that's salvaging <laughs> sidebar. If you ever get inside a Viper and you see little specks on the screens, folks, don't touch those screens. Uh, undoubtedly probably someone missed the piddle pack is, um, I'm saying I would get in there. I'm wiping everything down with little alcohol wipes and stuff. Like I don't, I don't trust my fellow fighter pilot when it comes to piddle pack ops, trust my life, but not piddle packs. So yeah. this theme is, is a clear departure from all the other episodes you've had on the Afterburn podcast. So I feel like we've really hit the wide range of things from piddle packs to, you know, the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, you know, we've covered, we've covered a few topics. Billy, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it, it's good to catch back up. It's always fun to be able to chat with you. I want to have you on here more. Again, the offer for bro chats. I mean, you bring a whole, you bring some saltiness. <laughs> But you bring some expertise to it, which is always good to have versus just the three stooges out there ranting about things. So you guys are funny as hell to listen to. It's really it really is entertaining. And I I've listened to all the bro chats so far. And yeah, I'd love to join you guys and, and not bring some adult saltiness, but maybe a different perspective sometimes uh, just to take the edge off or, or to contribute to the, the rants. Because yeah. I think they're important. You, you guys have said it actually that really is critical and leaders need to listen to the users, to the guys and gals on the ramp. And, and often as you move up in rank or move away from flying day to day, you forget how important it is to understand what, what everybody on the line deals with day to day. And that's why senior leaders that still fly, one of the reasons they fly is one of the reasons the four stars fly was because they need to go to the squadron and sit in a brief and hear what's going on and understand what the line people uh, live with because it gets filtered through all the ranks all the way up. And so there really is value. And, and I'm, I was never a general officer, but I, I do know about, you know, a bit of, having done this a long time, there is a bit of sageness that comes with having been around long enough and, uh, you know, having some experience, not necessarily wisdom of having done this a long time. No, it's good. And it is true. It's, it's nice to have those guys still flying the good bosses. They either one will surprise, like jump into the squadron or whatever, so that the dog and pony show doesn't happen. And that's not always possible, but that's one thing that I've never been, I never will be at that level. Right. But the good ones 
realize that usually the red carpet gets rolled out, the shiny toys get pulled out, and it's the ones who can show them really what's going on. That's where the rubber rubber meets the road. And then hopefully some changes can be affected versus like, oh, hey, the boss is coming down. Let's make sure everything let's hide everything that doesn't work. Now, this this is the time to show the boss that, oh, by the way, you need to step and you need to sign out on your your FCIFs. You know, your your exec didn't do it for you or print everything out. So you can just sign it and they can green you up the computer like now you get an experience logging in for 15 minutes and trying to do that. I digress, but it, there's there's good ones out there, and we always we always name drop Maestro. I think Vader and Bender are talking to him actually this evening, which he he's a good one. He's up there in the Great White North now as the U.S. Air Force representative, and the senior ranking officer at NORAD. So, um, well, I, yeah, I, I like ones. I I I come back to someone you know and and uh, you know his son too, Gary North, and Nordo four star general who you know his last sortie as a Viper by the way mid kill. Um, he, his last sortie was, was full on ACM and BFM and as a four star. Yeah. And he understood what it was like. And he still represents, he's still as patriotic as ever, even as uh, someone who works in aerospace as a civilian. You know, he understood that he's, he represents the warfighter and he was a warfighter and that warrior. And those guys, as they move up the rank, they, re- they know what is needed in the squadrons and the wings, what it's needed to go go fight real wars and how to keep that the focus, how to keep the focus on the men and women, giving them the, the equipment that they need to go uh, survive, be lethal, to, to, to live. Um, and those are the kind of leaders that inspire us all. You know, as we move up the ranks, we see great leaders and you realize they're focused on us and not themselves. Yeah, you want the guys who are going to be falcons, hawks, eagles, not the ones who are going to be seagulls and penguins. You know, they they they, they have their wings; they don't do anything with it. So, um, yeah. yeah, digress. But sir, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. Again, it's always fun to chat. So, I really okay, do. Thanks appreciate for having it. me. It, it is it is fun to to chat. So, thanks for taking the time to have me on. Love your show. Love listening to your episodes and the bro chats have been really entertaining. So, the three of you are doing a great job. <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to come on. So it'll be good. All right, Billy. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, ask to swing over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop a rating review. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can click the link down below and join in. And I'll see you next time.